Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the center in person and online. I'm Tanea Tauber, the Senior Director of Town Hall Programs. In this episode, we explore the history of the African-American fight for freedom during the Civil War and Reconstruction periods. This conversation, presented in celebration of Black History Month, features historians Etta Fields Black, author of the new groundbreaking book, Combi, Harriet Tubman, The Combaye River Raid, and Black Freedom During the Civil War, and James Oakes, prize-winning author known for works such as Freedom National and The Crooked Path to Abolition. Thomas Donnelly, Chief Content Officer at the National Constitution Center, moderates. Here's Tom to get the conversation started. Hello, friends, and welcome to the National Constitution Center and to today's convening of America's Town Hall. I'm Tom Donnelly, the Chief Content Officer at the National Constitution Center, and I'm delighted to be with you here uh, for this amazing talk between two of the nation's leading historians about the battle to end slavery during the Civil War. So first, we have Etta Fields Black. She's an associate professor at Carnegie Mellon University, specializing in pre-colonial and West African history. She's written extensively about the history of West African rice farmers and is the author of Deep Roots, Rice Farmers in West Africa and the African Diaspora, and the co-editor of Rice, Global Networks and New Histories, her magnificent new book, and I really mean it, it's such an amazing read and so it's such a rich set of stories that we're hoping to draw out on our program today. Uh, and she's going to discuss it. It's called uh, Combi, Harriet Tubman, The Combi River Raid, and Black Freedom During the Civil War. And then James Oakes is a distinguished professor emeritus of history at the Graduate Center for the City University of New York. He's the author of numerous books and articles on the history of slavery, anti-slavery, and emancipation, including The Radical and the Republican, Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, and the Triumph of Anti-Slavery Politics, The Crooked Path to Abolition, Abraham Lincoln and the Anti-Slavery Constitution, and finally, Freedom National, The Destruction of Slavery in the United States. Thank you so much for joining us, Etta Fields Black and James Oakes. Glad to be here. Thank you for having us. So let's start with you, Etta Fields Black. You know, the most gripping part of your book, and, and so much of it is, is just an amazing read, is just when you tell the story of the Combe River Raid itself. So I'd really like to just start there and place the raid itself on the table. We'll eventually turn to some of the great details you have about Harriet Tubman's Civil War service, and also about many of the individual freedom seekers that are part of this story. But I just want to first place the Combe River Raid itself on the table. You describe it as, quote, the largest and most successful slave rebellion in U.S. history. That's such a powerful way of putting it. Can you just share a bit about the, 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 you know, the broad outlines of the story with our audience to get our, our conversation kicked off. Absolutely. So the Cumbie Raid takes place on, starts on June 1st of 1863. And if you remember, this is after the Battle of Port Royal, which took place in November of 1861. The U.S. Navy drove its armada up the Port Royal Sound. Um, and the planners flee and the enslaved people are no longer enslaved, but not free, right? And the U.S. Army occupies Buford, the Sea Islands, and Port Royal. Um, I characterize Buford then from that point on as a harbinger for freedom. The planners on the Cumbie, who were 20 miles away, they know what's going on. They know the U.S. Army 
is in Buford and on the Sea Islands, and the enslaved people know it also. So people who could push, pull, drag, float, you know, take makeshift watercraft to get to Buford knew they could be free. I say this because we know, I know, I was able to trace uh, people who had formerly been enslaved on the Cumbie, actually in Buford, some of them working for the U.S. Army Quartermaster before the raid takes place. So the raid is fomented in Buford. Harriet Tubman is in Buford. We know that Tubman was working in the, um, the refugee camps and gathering intelligence. I also was able to find that Tubman uh, found the enslaved man who put enslaved men who were forced to put the torpedoes on the Cumbie River. She, her group of spy scouts and pilots removes them and opens the river for the U.S. Army gunboats. So these gunboats leave Buford, the downtown wharf, on the night of June 1st. And because it's June, you know, it gets dark pretty late. They leave about 9 p.m. Um, it is the full moon. It is the flood tide. And they are using, the tide is always very important in coastal South Carolina, very important to rice, very important to transportation, important for everything. So it's that tide and the amplitude of the tide that enables these gunboats to get up this very sinewy river. Um, and so they leave from on June 1st, about 9 p.m., lighted by the full moon, the light of the full moon, um, with three gunboats. These gunboats go up through the Kusaw River. They could have gone the long way. And I think that was probably the original plan was to go around through St. Helena Sound. Um, but they took a risk. And one of Tubman's spy scouts and pilots I've been able to document was actually born on the Kusaw. And so he may have played a large role in making that risky decision. It was a decision that saved time, but the Kusa was also lined with sandbars. And so running aground on the Kusa was a very high probability. And one of the ships did run aground. And because of the tide, they didn't have time to wait for the next high tide to push it out. So they left it behind. And it was one of the transport steamers. So about half as many people, they could only take half as many as they anticipated. They go up the Kusaw River, they get to the mouth of the Cumbie, they encounter the Confederate pickets at Fields Point, and they, you know, the pickets run away, and so they proceed up the Cumbie, and leaving one company there, another company is left at Tar Bluff, and then they go up the Cumbie. Um, in all, they raided seven rice plantations. Okay, that area of, of the Cumbie River is surrounded by rice plantations. Um, and the first boat, which was the Harriet A. Weed, stops at Longbrow Plantation. And I have this wonderful account of the, he wasn't the owner, but he, he had a life interest in Longbrow. He was the widower of the owner. And he's talking about what happens that morning when he's awakened at 5, p 5 a.m. by the enslaved driver and told that the U.S. Army is parked at his boat landing, right? And he runs 
tells the driver to go to the woods, I'm sorry, to go to the rice fields and get the people. He goes and tries to get the house slaves and tells them to go with him and hide, hide in the woods. And they completely ignore him, defy him, and they go to the boats. The second boat, the John Adams, which is actually the gunboat, the John Adams proceeds up the Cumbie and it docks at Cumbie Ferry. And today Cumbie Ferry is the Harriet Tubman Bridge, right? So anyone down there driving over Highway 17 from Charleston to Beaufort um, is going to cross the highway, uh, the, the Harriet Tubman Bridge, right when you right about the um, county line between Colleton and Beaufort counties. Uh, and there's a historical marker there. So it parks there. And because it's a gunboat, you know, it has it has guns. They're not very big. <laughs> this is not the U.S. Navy Armada, you know, but they're more than what the Confederates have. So it parks itself. It commands the causeway, as they call it. And it's it's shooting at the Confederates coming by land and also coming if they were to come by water. And um, they had also encountered Confederate pickets at Cumbie Ferry. So from this point, uh, at these two points, Longbrow and the Cumbie Ferry, um, about 250 soldiers dis disembark and black soldiers um, from the second South Carolina volunteers there's also the third Rhode Island heavy artillery. Um, and so some of those soldiers are getting out uh, and on, getting on land onto the plantations. They're also working the guns on the um, John Adams. They're, they're manning some of the guns. So the soldiers um, go out on the plantations, right? And important to remember, and I, I personally, because I'm a specialist in rice, I found this fascinating that when they first arrive, Longbrow, it's 4 a.m., the enslaved people are in the rice fields hoeing rice. 4 a.m., it's pitch black. You know, you would have to walk probably a mile from the slave quarters down to the rice fields in the dark in the summer where people down there would say everything is out, right? Every kind of snake you can imagine. Cotton mouths, water moccasins. They're standing in the rice fields. The water is drawn down, but alligators, it's still dark, nocturnal, you know, doing their thing. It's a time when um, the eggs would have just hatched. So they're young who are out with their mothers and the mothers are very territorial about their babies. It's, you know, to be standing in a rice field at 4 a.m., it just kind of blows my mind. Um, so the boats blow their whistles, right? The newspaper accounts talk about the uninterrupted steam whistle, and people begin to run to the boats from the rice fields. Another account that I have is from Minus Hamilton, and I'd love to talk more about Minus Hamilton, but an 88-year-old enslaved man who was in the rice fields with his wife, um, and he talks about his, his escape from slavery, his escape from bondage during the raid, um, how they get to the boat, how he feels about getting to the boat, what he sees. It's really a phenomenal, a really phenomenal account. So 756 people are taken aboard. Um, the U.S. didn't lose a single life. 
there were moments where they skirmished with the Confederates, but the Confederates are really sending, the pickets are really sending for reinforcements. And the reinforce, some of the reinforcements arrive, but the majority of them do not. Um, and so the Confederate army spends most of its time helping the planters to try to get people off of the plantations and into the woods. Um, and in that process, the Confederate army, one, I'm sorry, he, the Confederate army is assisting one of the overseers and the overseers shoots a girl. He shoots an enslaved girl, shoots and, and kills. Um, but the U.S. didn't lose a single life. And um, the people are, are herded onto these two boats, one transport steamer, the Harriet A. Weed, and the gunboat, the John Adams, with the soldiers, with Tubman. Um, and there are also scenes of people being left behind, right? People who didn't get to the boat on time, people who are arriving as the boats are leaving and who are just in anguish because they are left behind in bondage um, on one plantation where the overseer and the Confederate army were able to prevent people from getting to the boats. Those people were left behind. So scenes of anguish as well as scenes of triumph as the boats pull off. Um, they sailed all night and arrive back in Beaufort, downtown Beaufort, um, the morning after the raid. And just, again, very dramatic uh, scenes and emotional scenes of the Cumbie Freedom Seekers parading down Bay Street in downtown Beaufort. And if you think about, if, you know, just to go back to what Beaufort would have looked like, you had Black people in Beaufort who were free since November of 1861. And since then, you've had these overlapping waves of refugees coming into Buford, right? As people came in by themselves or as the U.S. Army, you know, um, had expeditions and brought people in, some very small, some pretty large. But people were free. They were settled. And of course, um, they, they were actually free by that time because of the Emancipation Proclamation and before that because of the Confiscation Acts. Um, and to see these 756 people who were straight out of slavery, they were straight out of the rice fields, you know, um, they were skin and bones. It's the way they're described in their field suits of dirty gray is just mind-boggling. And they marched proudly down the street and went to a church uh, in downtown Beaufort, where both Colonel Montgomery, who was the commander of the expedition, and Harriet Tubman uh, gave, gave a speech. And 150 of the men, aged 14 to 60, enlisted in the second South Carolina volunteers that day. And they went on to fight for the freedom of others. Amazing. What a great way to frame the entire discussion here. Thank you for that, Etta Fields Black. You know, James Oates, now thinking about the, the Combee River Raid, it takes place in, in June 1863. Can you place that date in context for us? Where were we, you know, when it comes to the Civil War? Where were we at that point? How would you sort of describe the, the sort of the surrounding context? Well, the, the biggest surrounding context is actually what happens within a couple of weeks. 
of the Combi River raid because the, uh, the, the combined battles of, of Gettysburg and Vicksburg are a major, t- they happen in July and they are th- perhaps the major turning point in the war when it becomes, I think you could say at that point, Northern military victory, strictly military victory, was virtually inevitable by that point. It doesn't mean that the South couldn't have succeeded in gaining its independence by political means. It did not mean that emancipation was over and complete. The Emancipation Proclamation is a major step, but the kind of thing we're seeing that that Edifield Black shows so beautifully is is uh, is going on in smaller ways all across the South, wherever the Union Army shows up. And the accumulated effects of that are dramatic. The, by the end of the, by the time Lee surrenders to Grant at Appomattox in early 1864, some 500,000 enslaved people are within Union lines. You know, that's a staggering number. And, and by some reckonings, that makes, that makes, the destruction of slavery all but inevitable by that time. Uh, it'll take a few more things to get that done, but really, uh, 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 it's it's the kind of event that uh, that Cumbie represents that cumulatively will bring about the ultimate destruction of slavery. I think, and it's very important. It's very important to emphasize the degree to which the policy of the anti-slavery policy adopted by the Union Army early in the war in the Confiscation Acts presupposed and depended upon the, the enslaved people taking their own freedom by coming to Union lines, by coming into Union lines. And so you see this beautifully in, in Edda Fields Black's book, I think. Excellent. Thank you for that, James Oakes. Um, Edda Fields Black, we're already getting some questions in on the Q&A about Harriet Tubman, who you mentioned in your initial answer, you know, she's obviously a, a, a key part of your story. Can you just talk a little bit, first just remind us about her, her broader legacy, but also really go into some detail about the different things you learned and you, you, you could teach us about her service during the Civil War. Sure. So thinking about Harriet Tubman growing up in bondage in the Maryland Eastern Shore, um, and liberating herself in 1849, and then making approximately 13 trips back. And, you know, again, how do you get your mind around the fact that this is a person who took the risk twice, actually, and the second time was successful in in self-liberation, who then went back into the belly of the beast, or as, as... I borrowed from Frederick Douglass back into the prison house of bondage to rescue other people and bring them to freedom. So she's risking her own life. I'm sorry, she's risking her own freedom in order to do that. 13 times and freeing approximately 70 people and gave specific instructions to for another approximate 70 to liberate themselves. Um, Before the war, Tubman had become very well known by abolitionists in the North, particularly in Massachusetts, Boston, also in Philadelphia. Um, She was very much a part 
of those abolitionist communities by the late 1850s. Um, and during this period, after the Battle of Port Royal and the beginning of the Port Royal experiment, when Northern abolitionists who had been lecturing for, about slavery and organizing about abolition, I mean, ending slavery, where they actually had something that they could do, right? There's this um, eight to 10,000 enslaved, formerly enslaved people who are in Beaufort, the Sea Islands, Port Royal. And so the so largest social movement to date in history, um, abolitionists begin to organize, you know, for that. So Tubman is not, she's not volunteering to teach. She's not volunteering to um, supervise labor or be a missionary. She's sent by the governor of Massachusetts, John Andrew, to be a spy for the U.S. Army. Um, and she goes down and she's primarily in the urban areas, right? So the Port Royal experiment is more in the rural areas on the Sea Island cotton plantations. But Tubman is working in the refugee camps, um, in the camps where people who are coming from Confederate territory, where they sort of land first and where their needs are assessed and they are then sent on either to work or to a plantation to do agricultural work or they need rations, et cetera. So these people are coming fresh from Confederate owned, you know, controlled territory. And Tubman in talking with them is able to get intelligence that she then gives to the U.S. Army. And it's interesting because, you know, Tubman's role in the Civil War, I think, has been little, little known, the details of it, in large part because it doesn't appear anywhere in the military record, right? Her role in the Cumby raid doesn't appear anywhere in the military record. But there are these other nuggets that I was able to find. And one of which is a letter by William Lloyd Garrison's son, George Sergeant George Garrison, who writes about Tubman and this, inter this interview process where she was the one who the formerly enslaved people trusted, the freedom seekers trusted her and um, confided in her. And she's able to get, he says, more intelligence from them than anybody. And she hands that over to the union. Um, I was also able to find a letter in a private collection, which really has not seen the light of day. So we had to publish it in Cumbie. Um, that was about a conversation among the architects of the Port Royal Experiment, where they said they really didn't want Tubman to come right? Because she was too radical. They didn't want any of that underground stuff in Buford um, because they wanted to continue with President Lincoln's gradual approach, right? And they didn't want anything that was going to rock the boat. She couldn't teach. She wasn't literate. What good would she be here other than to stir up the slaves, uh, formerly enslaved people? Um, and we also know from a letter, and again, because nothing is written um, about her, there's actually very little written by the U.S. Army in the official military record about the raid. The one paragraph that's written by Colonel James Montgomery, who was the, who was the commander 
of the 2nd South Carolina and the 3rd Rhode Island heavy artillery's two batteries is not in the official record, right? So it's primarily the Confederate record. Anyway, um, a letter from Frederick Douglass's son written to his fiancée days after the Cumbie raid, where he says that Harriet Tubman's men piloted Colonel James Montgomery and his men up the Cumbie River in the U.S., the most successful raid of the U.S. Army. Amazing. Uh, James Oaks, you know, uh, Professor Fields Black there references uh, Abraham Lincoln in her answer there. And, and you've written a lot about Lincoln, the Constitution, the, the battle to end slavery. You have a, a great quote in, in your, your magnificent book, Freedom National, where you say of Lincoln, there's too much hyperbole in the way we talk about Lincoln. He was neither the great emancipator who bestrode his times and brought his people out of the darkness, nor was he in any way a reluctant emancipator held back by some visceral commitment to white supremacy. In the evolution of wartime anti-slavery policy, Lincoln was neither quicker nor slower than Republican legislators. Instead, they seemed to move in tandem. Can you talk about, you know, your book really deals a lot with the relationship between the Republican Party, Republican Congress, Abraham Lincoln, and then what's actually happening on the ground among freedom seekers and then eventually African-American soldiers. And can you just sort of give us a sense of how we think about how they, how those relationships, how those actors together move towards the destruction of slavery during the Civil War? Well, uh, uh, before I do that, can I just comment on something Professor Edfield Plank said? Because I think it's an important, it's, it's important. Um, the role that Harriet Tubman plays as a spy, you know, if you, uh, the, the Cumbie may, may not be in the uh, official records, but the official records are full of indications that all across the South, Union officers and soldiers were relying heavily on the information provided to them by enslaved people uh, on the ground. That, and I don't think we have a history of that yet. I don't think anyone has yet combed through those records to do it the way it deserves to be done because we can't evaluate the larger significance of it. So I, I appreciate the, the way in which uh, 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 Cumbie brings that out in a way that I think hopefully will inspire others. As for uh, Lincoln and the Republicans, uh, yeah, my, my book in some ways complements and, and touches on many of the issues that that uh, Cumbie raises, but I got interested uh, when I wrote my book on Frederick Douglass, I got interested in the way he became interested in anti-slavery politics. And I started getting interested in anti-slavery politics. And one of the things I discovered was, was that uh, Congress played a much bigger role in the, in the move toward emancipation than we think. And that, uh, uh, it's not that the Emancipation Proclamation isn't a major turning point in the evolution of that policy, but the policy starts much earlier and you need to know what the Republicans were doing with the first Confiscation Act, then the second Confiscation Act, then the law making it a crime for anyone in the Union Army or Navy to return fugitives to their owners, things like that. A whole series of laws that preceded the Emancipation Proclamation and, in fact, the Second Confiscation Act is what required an Emancipation Proclamation, right? It gave the president 60 days, right? And a few days after he signed it, he comes to the cabinet with the first draft that says on the basis of the First Confiscation Act. 
And then when he does issue it 59 days after the law was signed, it says, by the power vested in me by the Congress in the first confis- in the second confiscation act, blah, 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 blah. So I was trying to show the degree to which it's not Lincoln all the time. It's not Lincoln, Lincoln, Lincoln. And, and there's a kind of, uh, uh, there's, I think, I don't know, there's too much denigration of Lincoln for being too slow, and there's too much adulation of Lincoln for, you know, and I tried to put it in a, in, in a larger political context. And one of those contexts that I think is crucial for understanding what's happening at Cumbie is the degree to which from the late 18th century onward, uh, Northerners didn't like returning fugitive slaves. <laughs> they just didn't. And they were passing laws in the 1780s, making it hard to get slaves back, and the secessionists complained that the fugitive slave law of 1850 was a dead letter of the 10,000 estimated slaves who escaped to the North in the 1850s. Maybe three or 400 got returned, right? And so going into the war, we have a long history, legal, extra legal, you know, black communities, absolutely slave catchers would not dare go into a black community to, to to get a slave. But, you know, northern sheriffs wouldn't return them. State legislatures are passing laws making it hard. So you need to understand that when the Union passes these confiscation acts in in July, as early as July of 1861, they're basing it on a long history of knowledge that uh, slaves are going to run to Union lines. They've always tried to escape, and we've got to develop a policy that accommodates them. And, and you know, you read through Cumbie and you see all of these, you know, amazing people on, on you know, there are these, it's not just, it's not just the stories of the enslaved that she tells, which is a remarkable reconstruction, but, but of the planters and the background of their family and the geography, but also of the Union Army people, right? So I, I, I knew most of those people, but I didn't know all of them. And then I see them and they're doing what Congress has told them to do, you know, which is slaves come to your lines. You do not return them. You do not return them. And, and they do. The, the whole policy works because decades of experience taught them that enslaved people don't like being enslaved and they will run for their freedom when they get the chance. Thank you so much for that context, uh, James Oaks. And Edith Fields Black, so we, we talked a bit about Harriet Tubman, the raid at large. Um, I'd love it if you could, you know, share some of the stories of some of the other freedom seekers who were part of this story. I have a question here from Jackie Wiggins, uh, who says, can you talk just a bit more about those enslaved people who at 4 a.m. in the morning were working the rice fields in their physical and mental states? You also mentioned Minus Hamilton, who's a great, um, uh, uh, you know, great person in your story. Or anything you want to say about, you know, James Oak said, you know, the, the, the important role of really those scouts, pilots, spies that you mentioned a bit in your early answers, but fit as many of you know some of those stories to give us a, a sense of who beyond Tubman are, are, are the key people animating um, uh, just the, the, the power of this entire of, of this entire narrative. Okay, I'd be happy to. Um, so I'm going to start with Tubman's spy scouts and pilots. And prior to writing the book, we knew their names. Um, because in Tubman's pension file and in her, in her subsequent attempts through acts of Congress to get compensated for her Civil War service. 
um, those names were written in in those papers. Uh, but they've to date really only, as well as in her autobiography, they've been names on a page. Um, and so I wanted to find out as much about them as I possibly could. And I learned that one of them actually joins the U.S. Army after a raid that the Army conducted, I'm sorry, the Navy conducted on uh, the Santee River, um, which is north going towards Georgetown. Um, and the interesting thing about that is that that plant up there, one of the Cumbie planter families actually also owned a plantation. Okay, so these are two cousins who own one plantation on the Santee, one on the Cumbie. Um, and there was a will, grandfather's will was split. And so there were some Cumbie people up there who were brought down on from the Santee. Um, I found a document, uh, a Freedman's Bank account of one of Tubman's spies, scouts and pilots in which he said in this, in his Freedman's Bank application that one of the Cumbie planters was actually his father, that he was the illegitimate son of William C. Hayward. We had to print that document also. <laughs> And then a life history. Um, the abolitionists who were a part of the Port Royal experiment, many of them would amuse themselves, I think, by collecting songs. They would collect proverbs and they would collect life histories of the freedom seekers they met. And um, so I was able to find a life history of one of Tubman's spy scouts and pilots. And his son actually also joins the um the U.S. colored troops and had a pension file. Um, I One of the benefits of COVID, I guess, was that I had a chance to get into the pension files of the men who fought in the raid. And this would be the 2nd South Carolina regiments A through F. Um, and to really understand more of who they were. Um, prior to Cumbie, historians really focused on the first men who Colonel James Montgomery recruited being from Key West. And okay, yes, they were from Key West, but in companies A through F, there were a lot of men from Beaufort and a lot of men from the Sea Islands. And I think about a man by the name of William Fields who testified that he didn't want to join. He had just gotten married you know, but several people he knew had joined and the soldiers came and got him. And so he went, right? And he's not related to me. Um, however, my second, my third great-grandfather, my great-great-great-grandfather, Hector Fields, was one of the men who um, liberated himself after the Battle of Port Royal and joined the second South Carolina volunteers and fought in the raid. Um, and for the Cumbie people, oh my goodness, you know, this is where I, this is where I really came, one of the places where I came to this book and where I decided, hmm, once I found this evidence in the pension files that maybe there is something new to say here about Tubman's life and about the Cumbie River Raid, because the Cumbie people um, the veterans, the widows, their dependents, their neighbors testified about the details of the raid. Now, it's not pervasive, you know, it's not throughout, but I kind of got lucky in my first trip to the National Archives 
in which I was trying to figure out if there was any there there to actually pull files that talked about the raid. And so you look at someone like, uh, let me see a good one, Neptune Nichols, who talks about, you know, they would talk, they would speak in, in, in language of in relationship to another person. I grew up with that person since boyhood. We were enslaved on this plantation together until we got on the gunboat. We got on the gunboat together. We went to Beaufort and we joined the army together. Okay. And so they would often name the people with whom they got on the gunboat and name the, the men, these are veterans, would name the other men with whom they went to Beaufort and with whom they, they joined the army. Um, the women, and I'm thinking here of Sarah Osborne, talked about getting on the gunboat, but then the men were going to war, right? When we got to Beaufort, our men were going to war. My husband's going to war. Her husband was in his late 50s, but he went to war. <laughs> I said the oldest man was 60. He was really 60 when he joined, right? You had a whole string of 50-year-old men who enlisted in the second South Carolina volunteers. Many of them were discharged early, but they joined, right? They were ready to fight for freedom. Um, there are also a group of people who, for whatever reason, did not get on the boat. And I'm thinking of Elsie Jones Higgins, who says that she was in a delicate state and so she could not get on the boat. I suspect that she had recently given birth. That phrase is used by other women at other moments in time. Um, and I don't think that she was pregnant. I don't think that she was necessarily in the advanced stages of pregnancy because there's a woman, um, Phoebe Frazier, who has a baby on the boat coming back. <laughs> she gives birth on the boat and they name her daughter Seabird. Uh, and this is when they're coming back um, at the end of the war. So I don't think that if she had been extremely pregnant, I think she would have still gotten on the boat. I think she had just given recently given birth. There are um, a group of people on William Kirkland's plantation whom Kirkland had hired out, you know, a practice which is, which is unusual for the Low Country. Um, but he had hired them out to up to the upcountry, to the Camden area, where he and his wife's families were originally from, his father's family and his wife's family. Um, and so there are people who had been hired out who also tell their stories about the raid in other people's pension files. And there's one, another person who didn't get on the boat. His name is Jack, John Savage, John A. Savage, um, who testifies that he was William Kirkland's deer hunter. This was an enslavement. This is big hunting territory, right? Deer, duck, you name it. He was the deer hunter on the plantation. And Kirkland was in uh, white, Charleston Light Dragoons, right? And so they, they were very upper class men who needed the comforts of home <laughs> when they were in camp. And uh, 
they hunted, right? They, they raised horses. They did a lot of things. But um, John A. Savage was with William Kirkland in Pocatalago when the raid happened. And he talks about how he would walk home every week to visit his family. So he walked home one week to visit his wife and children, and he walked back. He came back the next week and they were gone. And he recounts everything that happened because he heard about, you know, why his family wasn't there. Um, Peggy Simmons is a woman who was on William C. Hayward's plantation. And she talked about in her, in her husband's pension file how the boat came and it went right up to William C. Hayward. It went right to Cypress Plantation. And there's several clues in the sources that led me to believe that William C. Hayward was one of the targets of the raid. You know, the U.S. Army had a way of going after what they call the notorious rebels. <laughs> and Hayward would have been considered a notorious rebel. He was the commander of um, troops at the Battle of Port Royal, right? So he was somebody who was known, his family certainly was known, that his plantation was at Cumbie Ferry, one of two at Cumbie Ferry, that they drove those gunboats up there to blast him out. And she talks about the people who got on when the U.S. Army landed at Cyprus, not only from Cyprus, but from Newport Plantation, which is across the river. And there are wonderful accounts in the pension files about the people on Cyprus and Newport. They are across the river, but they are a community. And they have been a community, you know, since everybody can alive can remember, and they got on the same gunboat together. The last person I want to talk about is Minus Hamilton, who says he that he is 88 years old when the raid happens. He probably was a little younger, but he remembers being 88 years old. He remembers being enslaved by Old Massa Lowndes. And Old Massa Lowndes turns out to be James Lowndes, who is the uncle of Charles T. Lowndes, who owned one of the plantations that was raided. Okay, so I go through this process of showing how Minus Hamilton and the other Cumbie people, my main characters, get to the Cumbie plantations, right? Um, so he's enslaved, he's sold multiple times. Uh, Minus Hamilton talks about how the enslaved people were in the rice fields when the gunboats came and um, the overseer was on horseback surveilling their labor and the overseer tells them to run to the woods and hide. He hides and he's shouting at them to come and to join him or to come and follow him. And everyone ignores him and goes to the boat. Um, Minus Hamilton talks about um, how he felt when he saw black, young black men in uniform, in US Army uniform. And he calls them de Brack soldiers so presumptuous. You know, these young men who held their heads up and proceeded to burn everything in sight, burn it to the ground. 
And he's telling his life story to Colonel Thomas Wentworth Higginson, who was the commander of the first South Carolina Volunteers. And Higginson asks him, well, how did you feel, you know, to see Lowndes House go up in flames? And um, I'm sorry, he was not on, he was in Paul. How did you feel to see the planner's house go up in flames? And he said, I didn't care anything at all. You know, I was going to the boat Um, and talks about he and his wife going to the boat. He regrets he couldn't go back and get his blankets, which were all that he had. Um, But they went on to freedom and they went slowly. The old folks have to go slowly, but the young folks can go fast. (laughs) That's remarkable. What a great what a great series of of characters and, and, and stories and um, uh, James Oaks to, to bring you, bring you back in. I mean, you, you, you've been in your, your responses so far, stress the importance of not just policy, but of, you know, freedom seekers being ready to seize their freedom precisely as they did in Kumbi. Um, uh, you know, an, another key part of, of your story as, as you tell it here is also how all of this connects to the Republican party and anti-slavery folks and their reading of the constitution. And so, you know, the very title of your book, Freedom National, referring to the Republican Party's vision, but also the ways in which the theory of military emancipation is so important to a lot of the policies that also enable, you know, uh, uh, freedom seekers to seize their freedom, that it's that interaction between policy and agency that leads to the destruction of so much of slavery during the Civil War. Can you talk a little bit about um, uh, the, the constitutional vision and, and how it intersects with our, our, our Cumbie story and similar things we see throughout the nation? Sure. It's, it's, it's a big, long story. But um, <laughs> <laughs> once again, it goes back to uh, uh, the late 18th century when, you know, throughout, throughout human history, War is the single most important source of slaves. Right? Uh, armies raid areas and enslave populations. I mean, Caesar did it in Gaul, and you know it, it happened all the time. Alexander the Great did it when he uh, just uh, just. It's normal for war to produce slaves. It's not normal for war to produce emancipation, and the shift in using war to free slaves comes in the late 18th century when, you know, uh, uh, both the uh, British troops, the British and the Americans offer freedom to slaves who would come and fight for their side. And this becomes something that is accepted as legitimate under the laws of war in the United States. You can you can see they signed three ter- three uh, the, the United States signs uh, uh, three different treaties with Britain over the next several decades, all of which acknowledge the right of of belligerents to emancipate slaves in an effort to win a war and and, uh, and or suppress a rebellion. And so this is understood to be part of the war powers of the Constitution going into the Civil War. And the Republicans accept it. They won't. They don't want to say that in the 1850s because they're being accused of being disunionists. And they're not going to say, "Oh, but wait, when we have a war, we'll free the slaves." They're not. They're not going to say that. But almost immediately with secession, they start saying. They start quoting John Quincy Adams, saying, "You know, during the war, you know, the in peacetime, the union, the federal government has no power over slavery in the state. But if there's a war," You know, then we can we can start emancipating, and he says Congress can do it. 
So right, he doesn't say it's the president. He says it's Congress, and it is Congress that does it. So the, the Republicans are heirs of a long series of precedents and legal arguments that say that in wartime, it is legitimate to uh, win a war or suppress an insurrection by offering freedom to slaves who come in to mostly uh, fight for the Union. Uh, You know, we know 180,000 African-Americans did ultimately fight for the Union, Um, but also just coming into Union lines, as I mentioned in, in a previous answer. You know, by the end of the war, we have a half a million Enslaved people have come in union lines and emancipated themselves in so in so doing. So it's it's something the Republicans accept as as a given coming into the war. Whether it's going to lead to the abolition of slavery, no one knows, and no one's assuming that at the beginning. But the war radicalizes uh, northern anti-slavery politics until you get them advocating uh, an abolition amendment that no one in 1860 and 61 was, was advocating. Excellent. Thank you for that, uh, James Oaks. And back to you, Etta Fields Black. We, we have some questions from uh, Michael Kahn just ask, asking about the sort of your method of how you constructed these stories. And, and I, you know, I think our audience would be fascinated to know just sort of the historian's craft and the, you've given some indications of the, of the sorts of sources you're looking at, but how did you it's kind of extraordinary how many things you're you're drawing upon. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your your, your process of, of constructing the, the 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 stories you're able to construct in your book. Sure. So the stories the the freedom seekers are found primarily in the pension files. So these are the files of the men who joined the Second South Carolina before the raid and fought in the raid. These are the stories of the men the Cumbie men who joined the second South Carolina volunteers after the raid. Um, And I, I collected the files. I collaborated with the international African-American museum and their center for family histories, USCT pension file project. They, and this is after I made the first discovery and decided I got to get these pension files. I need as many as possible. I actually need files for both regiments that were formed after the raid. I'm sorry, companies G and H. Um, That's really expensive. My research budget wouldn't handle it. So I had to make new friends. Um, So um, IAAM Center for Family History is collecting, you know, the pension files for the South Carolina black regiments. Um, And I partnered with them and I tried to read each and every file Um, And not only read it, but transcribe it and then enter it into my database so that I could keyword search it. Um, My method for getting the files was not at all alphabetical. You know, I started with the first group of files, which were, I was actually, this was a side project and I was looking for family members, um, family members that I thought had escaped in the raid. Um, and I chose a set of files and in that files, I happened to get lucky and find more than one file in which people were testifying about the raid. From there, what I did is, and I made this decision pretty early on to transcribe the whole thing. Some were 30 pages, some were 300 pages. Um, and to enter my transcriptions into a database and as I, as I read and transcribed the questions, 
you know, were developing in my mind. So those were part of my database. Um, and I would branch out so that then try to request the files and read the files of the people who testified in the previous file. So as opposed to going in alphabetical order, I use more of a network approach. Um, and that would lead me to more files. It would also add details to my database. My goal by the time I finished reading a file was to find out where somebody was enslaved. And there were many times I would read 200 pages of cursive and not come away with that prize. <laughs> and that was disappointing. But because I was building this database, because I would just, you know, file after file after file, I would compile these details in a way that I could go back and retrieve them. And one of the things, for example, if a veteran and a widow married before the war um, and the name of the preacher who married them, but not the plantation where they were married, with that name, I could search it and would often come up with other files who were married, but other, other files of couples married by the same man. So capturing those details and being able to get to access them was really important. I discovered in this process that a substantial number of the people in my database were not born on the Cumbie. And that piqued my interest. And one of the early files I read, I talked about John A. Savage, um, talked about these people coming from the Ogeechee River. And I was like, what? There was another file where um, they talked about uh, the man being born 15 miles away on the Ashley River, right? That's a Middleton plantation. That's Middleton Place today in Charleston. Um, so what I what became clear pretty early on is that all of these Cumbie people weren't from the Cumbie, where, or they were not from the Cumbie plantations from which they escaped. I wanted to know where they were from. They were all from rice plantations. And I wanted to, this is where I guess I got the, the notion to try to trace the freedom seekers backwards into slavery and forward into freedom. And the way that I did that was I, you know, I had my database and I, I began to see the people who were testifying about the raid and the people who had, whose, whose pension files had a lot of detail. We then, with my research team, um, tried to go forward in time and identify family members and people in the pension files testify about their families some going back multiple, four generations in some cases, and I'm capturing that information also. But then creating another database of these people who I think I can track and trying to layer on top of that Friedman's bank accounts, census, um, documents primarily from after the war with those in the pension files where people are naming their family members. From that we were able to identify family groupings, parents, children, spouses, siblings. And then I went backward in time and tried to find just scouring the planter records, wills, estate records, marriage settlements, mortgages, bills of sale. I think that covers it. 
um, where the planters were listing the enslaved people and often listing them in family groupings. So when I say <laughs> that I know who Minus Hamilton escaped with in the raid, that's because I've tracked them backwards, right? I've tracked them back to, to an 1839 bill of sale and then to an 1859 bill of sale, right? And it's the same family grouping. Sometimes there are a couple family members. There's a daughter who's missing. And I was able to do this for each and every one of the main characters. So I wanted to know who they were, where they came from, with which family members did they get on the boat. And in this process, I'm also uncovering all kinds of stories about the humanity of the enslaved, of their marriages, of their, you know, their, their weddings, um, the births of their children, you know, the praise house, who went to the praise house with whom, just all of the ways that enslaved people formed relationships. I'm getting and mining from the pension files. Um, and my goal then became to know who got on the boat and with, who, with which family members and went off to freedom in Beaufort. Wow. That's a, that's a quite an amazing process. It uh, is. It's staggering. It is. And, and I actually cool. forgot one source. <laughs> I just went one more source. How could I forget? So after the raid, three of the seven Cumbie planners filed for compensation from the Confederate government, right? For their losses during the raid. And they listed the names of the enslaved people who escaped. And in most cases, they listed their ages. Sometimes they listed their occupations. And other times they listed the names of the children with their mothers and the child's age. So I have the pension files on one hand where people are attesting to their family members, their occupations, when they approximately when they were born, I have the planters records on the other hand, when they're listing the people they lost. So I know who escaped in the Cumbie River raid. <laughs> can I can I say can I say uh, uh, for listeners who for whom they've never done a a lick of historical scholarship. This isn't a run-of-the-mill piece of research. This is this is a really a stunning piece of historical reconstruction that of the likes of which I can't I can't quite think of anything in comparison to it. It's it's and it's and and that that's only part of the book. <laughs> that's only part of the book. But we're talking about seven hundred and fifty some people yeah. who were yeah. illiterate. And therefore, didn't leave us letters, didn't leave us diaries, didn't leave us autobiographies uh, for the most part. So, the uh, the way uh, Edna Fields Black has reconstructed these people's lives is truly extraordinary. And 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 I, I hope uh, I hope everyone can go out and buy this book because it's an, an amazing story. Thank you. Oh. James Oaks, I can't think of a better way to end this extraordinary conversation, though I could I could talk to both of you for hours more. Uh, but the book, again, is Cumby, Harriet Tubman, The Cumby River Raid, and Black Freedom During the Civil War by Etta Fields Black. And if you want to check out 
James Oakes's classic work on the destruction of slavery during the Civil War. It is called uh, Freedom National, the Destruction of Slavery in the United States, which again, I have learned so much from, and I've learned so much from both of you. So Etta Fields Black, James Oakes, thank you so much for this just extraordinary conversation. I, I, it was a real treat. Thank you very much. It was thank great you. to be here. This program was streamed live on February 15th, 2024. This episode was produced by Lana Ulrich, Bill Pollack, and me, Tanea Tauber. It was engineered by Greg Sheckler and Bill Pollack. Research was provided by Yari Deraise, Cooper Smith, Samson Mostashari, and Lana Ulrich. Check out our full line of exciting programs and register to join us virtually at constitutioncenter.org. As always, we'll publish those programs on the podcast, so stay tuned here as well. Or watch the videos. They're available in our media library at constitutioncenter.org slash media library. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber.